Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church. It's a joy and a privilege to be with you once again, and we can meet together virtually and uh, talk about the Bible. And uh, our Bible study tonight, we're looking at Psalms 2 once again. And we're going to finish it up in this particular session. Now, you remember in this, we've been looking back and, and seeing that the uh, leaders of this world uh, all have an antichrist spirit. Now, they're not the antichrist, but they have that spirit within them. There's always a root of pride in every sin, isn't there? And uh, you go back and you think about Lucifer. Lucifer was an angel in heaven. And he decided that he was going to take over and be the big boss. And he was going to, as he put it, ascend to the throne of the Most High. Now think about that. What an arrogant and prideful statement. Why was it a prideful and arrogant statement? Doesn't he have as much right as God does? Absolutely not. Lucifer is a created being. Lucifer has limited power. Lucifer is not the ultimate in anything except maybe sin. You think about God, however, and God is the ultimate. He's the creator. He's the one without beginning or end, and he's the all-powerful one. You see, one of these days, God is going to tell the devil where he's going to live for eternity, and that's the lake of fire. But nobody tells God where to live or what to do because God rules and reigns over everything and everyone. And so for the devil to think that he could ascend to the throne of the Most High God, how in the world is he going to do that when he is a created being with limited power going against an uncreated being, the creator in fact, who has all power and uh, all knowledge and he is ever-present, one thing that the devil is not, well, I guess three things that the devil is not. The devil's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, and he is not omnipresent, is he? And so when you think about that, what kind of pride and arrogance is there in him thinking he can overthrow God? Pride is at the root of sin. When you think about Adam and Eve at the garden in Genesis chapter 3, I don't think that had the serpent simply said, try this fruit, it'll be the best thing you've ever eaten. He didn't make that appeal, did he? He said, try this fruit and you will be as God. Well, that appeals to pride, doesn't it? Eve looked at the fruit. That's the lust of the eyes. She saw that it was desirable to make one wise. That's the lust of the flesh. And... Um, then she took it and she ate it, expecting to become like God. That's the pride of life, isn't it? And when you think about what was going on there, what was it that really intrigued her? You'll be like God. You'll be like God. And then she was hooked. And uh, when you think about the verses that tell us that there are seven things that are an abomination to God, what is the first thing that God lists in the book of Proverbs? A proud look, pride. You know, whenever we get on our high horse and we want to look around and 
we want to say, well, homosexuality is an abomination to God. Yeah, well, so is pride. And while you may have never had a homosexual thought in your life, you have had prideful thoughts. And that's an abomination to God, too, because that's where sin really begins. That's what the fuel is for sin. For one single moment, I can pretend that I'm the sovereign of my universe. I can do whatever I want and whatever I decree and nobody can stop me. That's kind of what I'm saying whenever I sin, whether it's a big sin or a little sin, but I harbor it. You know, when somebody says, well, I just can't possibly forgive them. That's a prideful statement because you're acting as though you've got the ability to forgive sins and uh, not forgive sins, withhold forgiveness residing within you. And you don't have that opportunity. You don't have that. Whenever you think about the times when you are going to get revenge on somebody else, well, they deserve it. It's justice when actually the truth is it's nothing but vengeance on your part. Do you remember the Bible says we are to leave room for vengeance because God will repay? And yet we want to do it. We want to take matters into our own hands. And that leads even to just the idea of being independent of God. I can live independently of God. What do I need to pray for? It didn't do me any good. Notice the pride that was in that. Why should I give this to God? I didn't get anything back for it. Notice the pride that's in that. And sometimes even when we are disappointed by the plan of God in our lives. We just throw up our hands and say, well, that's it. I won't serve him anymore. Notice the pride in all of that as if he needs us. All of this points to the fact that within our heart is this tremendous capacity for selfishness. And the root of selfishness is pride. Why do I want to be selfish? Because I deserve it, man. I deserve it. I'm somebody and everybody else ought to recognize that. And so pride is an abomination to God. It's also at the root of destruction. The reason that Lucifer and all of his um, angelic cohorts, demons, are going to go to hell and spend an eternity in the lake of fire is because pride always leads to what? Well, the Bible tells us to destruction. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's always that way. You can't change it and I can't change it because whenever we get filled with pride, we get stupid, really, really stupid. It's when we think we've got it made that we do something that poisons the well. It's about that time we do something that causes everything to crumble. And even uh, King David would understand that. You remember Psalm 30? In Psalm 30, and I won't look it up, you don't have to look it up right now, uh, maybe later, David basically says that uh, in my prosperity, I said, Lord, you have made my mountain to stand strong. You know, when we think about a, a mountain, we think about something permanent. I mean, um, if I go to Pikes Peak right now, my parents went there on their honeymoon, and that was, I don't know, 60-some years ago. And you know what I'm going to see at Pikes Peak? Pretty much what they saw. Very little changes. In fact, the mountain's still going to be there, and it's the same height and 
everything like that that they saw. We always think of the mountains as being this, these big, immovable, always the same things. In fact, the psalmist said, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence does my help come? And some people have said, you need to look to the hills. That's where you're going to see God. That's not what the psalmist meant. The psalmist was talking about, as I come out of Jerusalem and I see the hills that are surrounding Jerusalem, I look to them. Where's the help coming from? Not coming from the hills. The hills would represent those things that are unchangeable. His grandparents, his great-grandparents, his great-great-grandparents all the way back had come in and out of Jerusalem and they had seen those same hills. And we don't find security in things not changing. We don't find security in anything that's on this earth. So the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. And then he tells us, it doesn't come from the mountains. My help comes from God who made heaven and earth. My help comes from the Lord who made the mountains, not from the mountains, not from maybe the high places where they're offering sacrifices to the idols. It doesn't work that way. And so our faith in the Lord and our confidence in the Lord is something that has to be unshakable. And yet we find sometimes it is a little bit shaky. Our faith is not what we want it to be. It's not what we think it ought to be. And uh, those times where we go from tremendous pride and David said, then you hid your face, Psalm 30. And then what happened? Everything for David just fell apart. And that's kind of the way we are. And we go between these states of pride and arrogance, self-sufficiency to humiliation up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. And we've got to learn. And when uh, the psalmist back in Psalm 2 now is talking about these prideful world leaders, these prideful kings who conspired together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, if Lucifer conspiring against the Most High God was foolish, this is like foolish to the 20th power, isn't it? These humans, these mortals, these children of dirt are getting together and thinking that in their might and in their collective brain power, they can come up with a conspiracy powerful enough to overthrow God. And what did we say was the response of God? He laughs at that. That's the dumbest thing he's ever heard. And we look at this and realize that God is going to do something and that's what leads us into the verses that we are going to cover tonight. So let's go to Psalm 2, verse 7. And I want you to see God does more than just sneer and laugh and um, be sarcastic and that kind of thing. God is actually going to do something about this. Here's what it says. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Ouch. And you shall dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. 
Why? Because they've been foolish before. Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Um, kindled but a little, I think other translations are a little easier to understand when it's quickly kindled. Uh, kindled but a little, kindled by just, it doesn't take much. And the wrath of God can come upon you pretty fast. Well, understand that better. His wrath is, is uh, kindled and uh, very quickly, very fast. Then he ends up by saying, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Now, you notice something right off. The psalmist is speaking um, in the first few verses, telling us what's happened. He's the one doing the, the talking. But in verse 8, someone else is speaking, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it is God the Father. God speaks in this one. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Who's he speaking to? That is the Father speaking to the Son. And the ends of the earth for your possession. How anybody can deny the earthly kingdom of Jesus Christ is beyond me. It's a literal promise given in the word of God. Now, I'm not saying people like that are not saved. I admire some of them and, and love them. And if you're an amillennialist, I love you. I just don't understand you. And why it is that some of these people will fight in the first 11 chapters of Genesis to say that's literal and that really is what happened. That's really how creation took place. And then they change their whole method of interpretation when they get into the book of Revelation and other passages and make that all symbolic. That's just kind of beyond me. And here, this isn't even the book of Revelation. God the Father says, you ask and I'll give it. And what am I going to give you? The nations. And I'm going to give you the ends of the earth for your possession, that earthly reign of Christ. And um, he tells, the Lord tells his son, and you're going to reign with a, with a rod of iron, with a rod of iron. That's a strong, strong, powerful reign, isn't it? In fact, um, whenever judgment does need to become, they'll be like pottery standing up against your rod of iron. It's going to be dashed to pieces. And so um, this is the Lord speaking. Then um, verse 10, whole different change. Be wise, therefore, because of this, be wise, O kings, in other words, put yourself in your proper place. Quit trying to be something that you're not. Be instructed in all of that. He tells them in verse 10 that like you would do with royalty, especially back in those days, kiss the son lest he be angry. And that kiss was not a betrayal kiss, not a superficial hypocritical kiss. It was the kiss of reverence. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Some people want to deny the anger of God, the wrath of God, but it's all throughout the scripture. And he says, as a result of that wrath, if you don't get into a right relationship with the son of God, what is going to happen? You're going to perish in the way 
and his wrath is going to come against you and it's going to come very quickly. But on the contrary, there's a blessedness to all who put their trust in him. Is that a reference to the gospel? Sure seems like it, doesn't it? Salvation by grace through faith, putting your trust in Christ, kissing the son, uh, the father speaking to the son. I mean, interesting, that's an allusion here in the Old Testament to the Trinity. And it's also an allusion to the incarnation of Christ and the salvation that we find in Christ and the judgment. Jesus said the judgment has been given to the son. And uh, here we find the son being addressed. Well, let's kind of look at our points tonight and just say, number one, the father makes a promise to the son. The father makes a promise to the son. And it's about the earth. It's about possessing the earth. It's about ruling the earth. All of this is so very true. And so the father is making a promise to his son that I will give you the nations of the world. And I've heard some people take that and they prayed that, Lord, you promised to give us the nations. Um, This is given to the son, the one who is going to rule and reign uh, over the nations and over the ends of the earth. It's not going to be just in Jerusalem. It's not going to be just over Israel. It's going to be over the entire planet. This is a time when the lion will lay down with the lamb. This is a time when a child plays with the snake and is not afraid. This is when the curse is reversed and Christ is the one who is ruling and reigning over all the earth. And so this is a fulfillment of a promise. The father makes a promise. And can we add, he keeps the promise that he makes to the son. And he puts it all in motion at the coming of Christ in the incarnation. That's when it all started. The king has already come to earth and the people said, we will not have this man to be king over us. He came into his own and his own received him not. They didn't want him to be the king over them. But that was part of the plan, the rejection of the people of Jesus Christ. And he died on the cross. That was not plan B. That was plan A all the way through. Died and was raised from the dead and exalted. And one day will return. And the second return is going to be so much different than the first advent, right? The first advent, nobody really knew. Nobody really noticed. And um, you say, well, the shepherds did. Yeah, but they wouldn't if the angels hadn't come to them. Well, the wise men did. Yeah, but they wouldn't if they hadn't known to look for a star and seen his star in the east, um, this, this was an event that would have been, aside from those things, very quiet and uh, very obscure. But boy, when the Lord comes back that second time, the Bible says every eye will see and he's going to come back to take over. He's going to come back to rule and to reign. He's going to come back to sit on the throne of his father, David. This is amazing. And how much is he going to rule? All the nations and to the ends of the earth are going to be his uh, possession. Okay. So think about that and look forward to that because this is something that is going to happen. I don't know when and you don't know when and don't listen to anybody who says that they know when because they're nuts. But it's going to happen. This is 
alluded to in Philippians 2, 5 through 9, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus has been, is being, and will be exalted. And in this stubborn, rebellious, treasonous earth where people conspire against him in everything that they do, he's going to come back and he's going to take over and he is going to be exalted. Never again to have his name used in vain. Never again to be overlooked or taken for granted. He's going to be the king of the earth. And the father, father promises that to the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we also want to talk about this idea of judgment. The scripture tells us here <clears throat> that uh, his rule will be just, powerful, and undisputed. Just, always right, powerful. He doesn't just say this is right and this is wrong. He can enforce it. And it's going to be undisputed. The Father has declared that he's going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. No one's going to be able to take him and put him out. No one's going to assassinate him. No one's going to be elected after him. No one is going to uh, secede him at all. The rule will be just, powerful, and undisputed. He talks about that thing with the pottery. Using a rod of iron, dashing them into pieces like a potter's vessel. You know, in Romans chapter 9, it tells us that the potter has a right to do with his vessels whatever he wants. And sometimes that meant when a, when a vessel was finished and the potter was not happy with it, he broke it. He destroyed it. It also meant that even the very clay that would be used, there were some clays that were more desirable than others, and he had the right to choose which clay that he wanted and to make it into what he wanted it to be. He could either make it into be a basin for washing feet, or he could make it into something that would be reserved only for when the very finest and uh, most special of guests would show up. The potter has a right to do that. And this is what the father is saying to the son. You are going to rule and you're going to rule with a rod of iron. And whenever you do execute judgment, whenever anyone does rebel against you, whenever one does break your law, then you're going to dash them with that rod of iron and they will be able to withstand you about as well as pottery withstands a baseball bat. The judgment of God and the judgment of the Son is going to be an incredible thing. Now, lest you think of it all as being negative, consider this. Judgment is going to be swift. You know, one of the problems we have today in our judicial society is we make a judgment and then it's 30 years before we carry it out sometimes. That's not much of a deterrent, is it? Here's another thing to think about. Judgment will be accurate. You know, sometimes in our judicial system, there's new evidence. There's a new witness. 
or maybe DNA. And somebody that's been in prison for a long time, we find out that they didn't do it and we release them. That's a sad situation, isn't it? And sometimes we notice that in our system that the punishment or the judgment doesn't fit the crime. My goodness, there are some things you can do that uh, in politics and others that will bring the wrath of Congress down on you, impeachment and all of that. And then there are other things that are done that are far worse and they just look the other way, yawn, nothing to, nothing to see here. I can promise you when Jesus rules, that won't happen. The punishment will fit the crime. When the Bible says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's not as gruesome as it sounds. It's simply saying, make the punishment fit the crime. Don't over punish somebody for a small crime and don't under punish somebody for a major crime. About that thing about the judgment being swift, Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. And boy, that's exactly the way it works. Needs to be swift. Consider that too when, as parents. Whenever you need to discipline your child, it needs to be swift. Don't wait till your kid forgets. Do it now. Take care of it. Now, number three, notice that this king here has a plan. He gives a gracious invitation. And he gives this invitation, and he says, Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Well, wait a minute. I thought it was the kings that were conspiring against him. Well, isn't that just like God? God gives an invitation to his enemies. Now, before we were saved, we were enemies of the cross, according to the book of Philippians. And he gave us an invitation, and we came by his grace. He's given an invitation to these kings. Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, O judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. See, generally, they wouldn't invite an enemy to do this. Enemies would be taken, and they would be killed, or they would be enslaved, or they would be put in prison, or something humiliating like that, but not to come up and approach the throne, not to be able to come up and worship the Son, not to be able to enter into the presence of God and to be welcome into that. That, that was a whole different thing. But this is our God, and he's a God who is very gracious. He gives an invitation to wisdom, and the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, isn't it? It's an invitation to instruction, or correction. The Lord loves whom he chastens or corrects. It's an invitation to accountability that you're coming before me and I'm the one who rules and reigns. You don't do what you want to do and you don't do it without repercussion. You're accountable to me even as a king. And it's an invitation to redemption. Kiss the son. Kiss the son. Get in a right relationship with God. And number four, Part of his plan is he gives a promise. Blessed are all those, not just the kings, but all those, including the kings now, who put their trust in him. That's faith. That's salvation. That's redemption. All we like sheep have gone astray, but he has laid the iniquity of us all upon him, right? 
We're the ones who need the blessing. We can't really bless anybody in and of ourselves. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Even that songwriter understood that. We don't carry around blessings that come from us. We carry around blessings that come from God. And so I can bless somebody else with the blessing with which God has blessed me, but I don't have anything of myself to give as a blessing to anyone else. How do we get to be the blessed ones? How do we get to be the ones that have God's blessing resting upon us, a blessing that we not only can receive, but a blessing that we can share? How does that happen? Well, we have to put our trust in him. And that's where it starts or it ends. When we think about this, the blessings that really matter, we're thinking about the blessings spiritually that come from God. You and I as Christians have a relationship with God, a right relationship with God. I guess you could say that lost people do too, but it's an adversarial relationship. They're adversaries. But you and I are brought into the family of God even to be called a friend of God. You and I are brought in to be royalty. You and I are brought in to rule and reign with him. And that is a completely, totally different change. What a blessing that is. The blessing of redemption, the blessing of salvation, the blessing, the blessing of forgiven sin, the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the blessing of having a home in glory land, as the old song says. <clears throat> All of these are blessings. And who do they come to? Those who put their trust in him. Those who are conspiring against the Lord are not putting their trust in him. I don't care how religious they seem to be. You see, the psalmist doesn't tell us who they are, but I got a feeling at least one of them was a Jewish king who would go into the temple every once in a while and sing psalms to the Lord and offer sacrifices to the Lord. And yet in truth, in his heart, he was dead set against the Lord. A lot of people come to church like that, don't they? They go through the rituals, they sing the songs, they pray the prayers, they give a little bit of money, they endure the preaching, but in their heart, they are against God. Think about Saul of Tarsus. When Ananias is told to go see him, Ananias goes, wait a minute, I've heard terrible things about him. And the Lord said, go, behold, he prays. Well, was that the first time Saul as a Pharisee had ever prayed? No. It was the first time that he had the blessed ability to actually speak to God, to actually pray instead of just reciting something in a religious dead ritual. This comes to people who put their trust not in what they do, but in the Lord himself. God didn't give you a ritual to perform. He gave you a person to receive and a person to believe. And so whenever you put your trust in anything else on this earth, a person, a possession, a bank account, status, whatever it might be, it'll make you feel good for a while, but then it's going to crumble. But when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, one thing I can tell you, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. And when you put your trust in him, you're putting your trust on a firm foundation. And the peace that he gives, he gives it not like the world gives. He'll give you joy as well, but it won't be like the world gives. And he'll give you 
himself, which is the most important thing of all. So God's got a plan, and he's going to execute that plan. Don't know when, but he's going to do it. You can bank on it. So quit trusting in politics. Quit trusting in money. Quit trusting in family. Quit trusting in circumstances and thinking that they'll remain the same and that you can control them. Put your trust in Christ every single day and in every single situation. He knows what he's doing. He has a plan. Thank you for tuning in and watching. Thank you for being a part of this. And I pray that your faith has grown as you take this psalm and look it over and study it for yourself. And may the Lord bless you. And may we also add, and even so, come Lord Jesus.